0: All right, so we are back for Thursdays at noon, and if you have your Bibles, we're going to be starting in 1 Peter chapter two, verses 11 through 17, and we'll read that, and then we'll pray, and we'll dive right in. Uh, So, 1 Peter chapter two, verses 11 through 17 says this: Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So we'll pray and then uh, we'll get started. Uh, Father, we love you so much. Um, God, we thank you for the chance to uh, have this letter that you preserved for us from Peter. Um, God, help us to understand uh, how to um, operate and live as Christians, as sojourners on the earth that we would do so in such a way that would bring you glory, um, God, I pitch, you would uh, show us in this text what we need to change in our lives, what we need to be convicted by, and uh, what we need to um, see Christ as modeling for us. Um, God, we thank you for your Son who has taken away our sins and given us life in return. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so um, when I think a lot about most of our lives, uh, a lot of it is actually becoming and learning how to live what we already are as a person, which sounds kind of strange, so let me give you a couple examples. Uh, So when you turn 18, uh, you are legally identified as a man, even though you look if you're like me, you look like a 15-year-old kid still, Uh, but you're legally identified as a man, and then you really spend the next few decades learning how to live and act and talk like a man. So you've already been identified and declared as a man, but now you're trying to live and function as one on the earth. Or even if, you, uh, if you're married, when you first say, I do, to your spouse, uh, at that moment you are declared married. Over the next few decades, again, it's kind of the same thing. You're learning how to live and act like a married couple or as a husband or a wife, um, how to act within a covenant, how to understand what the married life is like. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by that. And I think Christianity has a little bit of the similar instances where um, in Christ, in front of God, we are legally declared uh, righteous, We are declared as um, being upright in all of our living. There's nothing that God counts against us anymore. We are counted as if we have never sinned and always obeyed. And that truth is now being unfolded into our life and all aspects of our life. So the Christian life is really one of being called to Christian, being called righteous, and learning how to live as a Christian, to live righteous. So we're declared righteous in Christ, and now we're called to live as Christ. And the good news bad news is that we're going to spend our entire lives figuring out how to do that and get as close to that as we can only to finally achieve that in heaven. And again, this is kind of referred to a lot of uh, Christianology, a lot of Christian words. We'll use this as the already not yet of the gospel. Uh, You are already declared righteous from sin's penalty. So the penalty of sin has been taken away. And now the Christian life is, being, is living to be freed from sin's power in your life. And that's what it means to be more like Christ. So in this text, Peter has already reminded us in verses uh, 9 and 10 of our identity, namely that we are in Christ. We are a chosen people uh, for God's own possession. And now we're going to see how we are to live, how to act, and how to demonstrate why we exist as God's people, or as Peter calls us, as sojourners on the earth. Uh, So I think Peter here has three things I really want us to see. Um, And since I'm Baptist, I'm going to use alliterations. So I have uh, personal life, uh, your public life, and then finally our purpose in life. So your personal life, uh, your public life, and your ultimate purpose in your life. So first, I think Peter wants us to see how to operate in our personal lives. and by personal, what I really mean is the life that's kind of between yourself that nobody sees. And a life between you and maybe your, your two closest friends, the people that are around you that, are, that you consider intimate to be with, whether it's best friends or uh, your spouse or family. So your personal life. So there's a pro football quarterback from the 1980s that was very well known. His name is Joe Theisman. Um, and over his period of time, he's been married four times. I think currently he's on his fifth marriage from what I understand. Um, And during his second marriage, he was allegedly caught having an affair, which being married four times, is the odds are not in his favor. And according to the newspaper article, when this happened, he was quoted as saying this to his wife at the time. Honey, God wants Joe Theisman to be happy. So I think from that article, we can kind of conclude that Joe had this desire within him uh, to commit adultery against his wife. Yet he attributes all of this to saying it was God's desire. It was God's pursuit of Joe's happiness, Uh, of course, at the expense of his failed marriage. So Joe's understanding of happiness was actually rooted in his own idea of happiness, out of his own idea of what God was like. So he made an idol. He said, God is like this. Here's what God wants me to have. Therefore, that's what God wants. And really the Christian life is kind of similar to what Joe did, but the idea that we're all battling these things within us, these little idols, these little gods, uh, that we've actually carved into shape. Which is kind of funny, you know they're idols because they do exactly what you want them to do. They never go against your desires, they actually promote them, uh, and they're usually the easy way out. They're kind of the cop-out thing to do. So Christians oftentimes, I think, have a similar problem. Our flesh, our earthly desires that the Bible calls it, Uh, They well up inside of us and go into our minds and they corrupt our thinking. So if you look at verse 11, uh, Peter brings us right back to our identity and then he commissions us. So Peter's a good pastor. Uh, He loves to remind people who they are. And if you look, the very first thing we're called is beloved. Um, And I think when we think of this word, you think of the father saying to Jesus when he's baptized, this is my beloved son. Um, So the word beloved means dearly loved. But what's really interesting is a lot of biblical Greek scholars translate this word actually a little bit differently to help us get a firmer grasp on what it means. So it does mean dearly loved. That's not uh, being kicked out here. But they translate it a different way to get the real meaning. So here's how many Greek scholars would actually read this text. They would read it such as this. So verse 11, they would say, not just beloved, but they would read divinely loved ones. So to me, that kind of gives the sense of you are divinely loved by God. You are loved by a huge God. Um, So Christian, you are not just loved by God in the sense that God is love, as 1 John says, where he's just a a very kind God that just kind of puts up with you. Um, If you're a Christian, you are dearly loved. You are loved in a deep and intimate and a fatherly way that a father loves his children. You're loved by the Most High. And that's what Peter is calling us to again, is to recognize that we are dearly loved by God. We are the beloved of God. We are divinely loved by the Father. And with that, he then pleads us. uh, The word is urge. So urge, he pleads, he begs us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Uh, So Peter then says... Since you're beloved by God, abstain from the things that are not of God, which come from yourself. So we have these desires that are well up within us that are they're unnatural to the Father's love, they're in contrary to it. We're called to keep away from those passions, to push them away, to keep them out. And the way we do that is very peculiar. We actually are uh, we don't just suppress desire, we go to a better desire. So Christianity is not about you just saying, No to everything, no to this, no to that. It's actually saying if you will, yes to something that's superior, something that is actually greater uh, than worldly desires. And if you're wondering why it's so hard, I think we can understand just by thinking through it. So if not all earthly desires, I think you can maybe say all, but definitely most for sure. Most earthly desires promise uh, pleasure and fulfillment right now, at this very instant. So if you give in now, you get it. There's no waiting. Uh, You don't have to wait and hope for a period of time. Usually you get it now. But the flip side is that pleasure actually only lasts just for a little bit. It's typically a few minutes, maybe a day, kind of depending on what you're looking at and talking about. And the flip side of the heavenly pleasures of pursuing Christ, most of the time, I think ultimately the satisfaction is promised for later, but the time length is forever. So I think some obedience to Christ, I do think it brings pleasure now, so I'm not, not negating that, but I think ultimately it promises pleasure in the future, pleasure for eternal so really, you got to decide what's, what's worth it. Something that's fleeting and cheap and quick that ends in an instant, or something that is longer and greater and more sustaining. That's the Christian life. That's what we need to understand. That's the war we w- wage within our souls. What is ultimately better? What is sustaining? And of course, the Bible points us in Psalm 34, it says to taste and see that the Lord is good. So the Bible wants you to see, to grasp, to understand that God is truly good, that He is satisfying. Um, and that's why we abstain, not, not just because sin is vile, but because Christ is better. So the Christian has the both and. We see both those truths, but and that Christ is superior. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that the Lord finds our desires on earth not too strong, but too weak. So the person who gives in all the time to temptation isn't the one who's strong, but the one who's actually weak. Um, and in Christ, he is satisfying. So our problem is that we are, we are too weak. We settle too quickly for cheaper things. Um, I think it's because we all have this hunger to be satisfied, which is kind of the simple way that Christians say it, but we have a longing for something that'll last, for something that's good. Um, if, you, if you go online and look up the, the top... Uh, Steak houses in the country. Uh, Number one right now uh, is called the cut and it's in Beverly Hills, California So if you want to fly out west for some steak be a good idea. Uh, It looks like according to their menu. They have 17 different options of cut and These all range from different countries to different states to different kinds of cow from different areas Um, so let's say you go there because you're hungry and you want to eat steak and you know that ordering steak takes a few minutes. They have to cook it, prepare it, they gotta get it seasoned, uh, especially if you want it well done so it'll cook well. And it take a long time. Let's say you went and ordered steak, and instead of waiting for it, uh, you went up to the gas station and bought some Nutrigram bars and ate those and got full, and then you left. Well, if you're like me, I would call you a fool because you go to the best restaurant and you wait for steak. It's coming your way, it's been promised. You just have to wait. But instead, you want craving now, so you go eat some granola bars and you, you blow it. You get fat on something that's not even worth it. And it's kind of how the Christian life is meant to be. It's meant to be seen as we constantly go to these cheaper things when we have everlasting pleasure right in front of us. And we just have to wait. We just have to wait and trust that God is good, that He is for us in that sense. And that being obedient to Christ is actually better. So God... Calls us to wait out, to wage war, to fight the flesh, as the Bible calls it, and to feast on Christ. So the Christian life is seeing that Jesus is more satisfying. And in doing this in our personal lives, with our inner circle of friends, or family, or, and just in our, in our hearts, uh, we begin to demonstrate that Jesus, that the lover of our souls, is better. And look at verse 12. This is also kind of the purpose of why you do this. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as an evildoer, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So when we're in the midst of our friends or even just in the heart of hearts that we have or our family or our spouse, and we constantly are demonstrating that we're going to wait for Christ, that we're going to uh, sink our teeth into Christ instead of biting something that's cheaper. We're actually making Jesus to look as He actually is, as He is beautiful, as He is worth it, and that's that's, that's the Christian life. And what's interesting is Joe Thiesman, that quarterback, he failed to do this, so he followed the nature of his will. He sinned against his marriage, and now what? What do people do? Well, we speak against him as if he he was an evil doer. We speak against him poorly. Well, Joe was dumb. That was really wrong. What a bad husband. What a bad man. May that be never be true of us, that people will look at our lives and call us a fool for how we live because of the sinful, evil things we do. Uh, He says that when they speak against you as evildoers, so may we never be seen and caught, so to speak, as doing evil. May we pursue Christ and kill the evil within us. So those who speak against us will see that Jesus actually is better. There's something peculiar about a Christian that we're not the same, that we are a soldier, that we are an alien. And what's interesting is in this verse, too, if you look at the very end, it says that they may glorify God. So the purpose is that God looks great on the day of visitation. Now, I've looked at multiple commentaries. Um, and the same language on day of visitation is actually used in Luke 19. But in verse 12 here, they think that the broad understanding is there's two answers that are probably both and. Um, they understand the first one to be the day where Christ returns. On the day where he comes to judge living and the dead, where we will see that God was good, that he actually is to be treasured. And the other understanding that a lot of commentators have is the day when God opens the heart of an unbeliever and saves somebody, when he visits them. So what's interesting is the way you live really does matter as a Christian. It's it's, it's not a free pass. Uh, Your good deeds, your faithful living, points to a greater reality. And, of course, the gospel needs to be spoken so people don't know the gospel by how you live, but they see that you believe it if you live in such a way. So, Christian, your life does matter how you live it. Um, It's a fearful thing to just think about. It's a very weighty task, but um, your life could be, in a sense, used by God to pry into someone's heart for the gospel, and that's a very weighty matter for for us to take, not lightly. So how you live your life matters. So our personal lives as Christians are where we wage war for the worth of Christ in our lives, that display that Jesus truly is glorious, as we say that he is. So next, Peter's going to take us to kind of how we act and live in our public. So that's our personal life. The personal life we cover is kind of between us and maybe our few friends or maybe our spouse. Now our public lives, how you live as a person in the city you're placed in, in the state, in the country, and a broader understanding of just how you function outside of your home. So if you remember the context of this letter, I think these next two verses will kind of be a, kind of a wake-up call uh, at least for myself as I read this. So so Peter wrote this letter in around, say, 60 AD, somewhere in that range. This is when Nero was still reigning as the emperor, as the king, as the president of Rome. And if you remember who Nero was, was he was a cruel dictator. Uh, there's some facts that he made a 100-foot-tall bronze statue of himself. So he was very, very humble. Uh, and he actually was, was responsible, we think, for the great Roman fire which burned for about nine days. And instead of owning up on himself, he blamed the Christians and said, it's their fault, they did it. So that means that now all of Rome is automatically against Christians because, well, you, blew, you, you ruined my house, you ruined my business, you killed my family because of the fire. And now in this time, Christianity has been heavily persecuted and Nero is known for doing cruel things um, such as skinning animals, as uh, you take their skin, he would sew it into the skin of Christians and feed them to lines for sport. Um, he would occasionally soak people in oil and nail them to a cross and burn them as a light during the evenings for his parties. So Nero was a ruthless man. He was very well known. So now have that in mind and read verse 13 and 14. I think it's a little bit of a, a wake-up call for us. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So again, think as if these people were thinking, Peter just told you to give respect and to honor and to submit to people like Nero when Nero has probably killed people that you know. He's probably just slain maybe someone you worship with, maybe a friend down the street, maybe a Christian that, I don't know, but he's telling you to honor these men, to submit to them, To if they tell you to pay taxes, you pay taxes. It's a very peculiar thought. So who does Peter think that he is? That would be my question. Who do you think you are, Peter? And look at Peter's reasoning. It's not for the good of the people. It's not for Nero. It's not so that we'll have a better life. It's, although I think those things are somewhat included, but the real reason, as a divinely loved one, as a beloved one of God, if you look, is for the Lord's sake. So Peter's reasoning is for Christ, it's for the Lord. It's not for Nero, it's for the king of Nero. And Paul echoes this command in Romans 13 where he says, we're called to be subject to all the authorities um, because they are placed by God and from God. So even though Nero was wicked, somehow in the mystery of God, Nero was placed by God's hand to do and to be the authority over Rome. So how does that affect your view of government? Well, one implication I think for sure It should remind us that God is somehow accomplishing His will. Even when Nero reigned, God was not thwarted. Um, His plans were not being stopped. Even evil men carry out God's purposes. Um, And I think we see that in a way that the Scriptures, I think, testify as well. But if you look at church history, um, persecution never stops the gospel. It seems to spread it quicker. It's very odd how that works. God, in such a way, uses suffering and evil... Uh, not to stop the gospel, but to actually make it go, go further, go faster. So if you think about it, Nero was the reason, he was a reason why the gospel spread so quickly out of Rome and into their countries. Because an evil man who persecuted the church, and the gospel was spread and people heard about Christ and were more urgent to die for him and to spread the gospel. So uh, remember that the blood of our fellow brothers and sisters is the seat of our church today. Um, and know that God is over government, that he institutes, that he has placed people in positions for his purposes, for his ways. And we're not really called to pry into the reasons why, but just to to trust and to submit to the government here, as it says, and to trust that God is over it. Um, Daniel 2 says that God changes rulers just as he changes the seasons of the weather. So just as the fall is becoming cooler now, that's how God changes kings. It just happens quickly. He doesn't have to wait. He does when he wants to, and it happens. And an interesting question about the government is asked by Jesus in Mark 12, where they ask him uh, if if we should pay taxes or not. And Jesus says, "This render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's." So, Christian, here's what you're called to do under the government: you are called uh, to pay your taxes, uh, to wear your seatbelt, and don't park in front of a fire hydrant. That you're you're told to do that. I don't know why, but that's the government's rules. Okay. Does that glorify God when you do those things? Yeah, it does. And I think that that's the mystery we need to understand is that is what makes God look good because ultimately your worship, your joy is to God, but your loyalty to the country goes to your authorities. And that's that's the tension we have as Christians. We need to hold those things both. And I think if you understand that you're, so, that you're a sojourner here, but a citizen in heaven, I think it makes a lot more sense that as we're passing through will obey what they say, but ultimately we are subject to Christ. Verse 14 tells us this. They are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So ultimately the government is, is, our, is for our good. You know, at times we don't think that, we don't believe that. They actually are here to protect us, to keep us safe, to punish criminals, to praise those who do good. God has sent them here for our goods. So we're called to trust him. So from your boss at work to your teachers, to your city mayor, even to the president, we submit to them and we walk in the ways that they call us to walk in. And of course, however, if there's any, if there's a situation where the government's rules and regulations go against the scriptures, uh, you're called to rebel against the government and to go to Christ. So just, just a simple example example from the Bible. Uh, the book of Daniel, uh, you have the Jews are in Babylonian captivity. They're all called to worship a golden statue by the king. Uh, three young men don't, and God praises them for it. So that's an instance where you are called to rebel against government, but I think as of right now, we're not really facing that. But I do think that will happen at some point, but it is being faced in different parts of the country now, in the world actually. But So in and through it all, whether for good or for bad, the government is accomplishing God's purposes. Uh, we're to trust Him, to submit to the government, knowing that God has put it there over us. And when things conflict with God and government, we go to God. We trust God. We go to Him. And all of our submission to the authority is for the sake of the authority over the government. That's why we submit, not because of the government's sake, but because of Christ. And verse 15 tells us that this is God's will for us, that that's part of His will. In doing so, we put to silence foolish people. We put to silence what they say. So, may Christians never be slandered, for doing something sinful that, wasn't, that was actually true. Uh, so if you were caught stealing as a Christian, it may it never be true. Um, we should not be the ones who um, talk back to the waiters at restaurant and, and make a fuss over a missed a meal or we should, be, you know, we should be late for work and make a fight about it. We should be the ones who are on time for work, who are obedient to our bosses. We should submit to the government. Uh, Christians should be of honorable um, applause at work. We should be those who are looked up to and looked at as being good. And that's part of how God gets glory in that, in such a way. So that is God's will that we do that. Um, Our public lives should reflect the life of Christ. So whether you live this way for the welfare of the city, uh, you submit to the government's authorities around you, ultimately all that you do is for the authority of authorities. That's why we do this. It's not for the sake of uh, the city mayor or for the president. It's for Christ because he is the authority of all authorities. And now, Peter's going to kind of reflect on the purpose of all of this. So, the reason why we fight against our flesh, the reason why we submit to the government, is all for the grand design of God. So, I think a really cheesy um, illustration that might be helpful—at least for me—it is: uh, if you take any kind of classic movie where you have two parents and they have at least one or two kids, and the kids seem like they're good, the parents are nice, and the parents say, "Hey, we're leaving for the weekend." Um, here's 100 bucks for pizza money. We'll be gone. We'll come back Monday. So the parents are gone on vacation. The kids are home alone because the parents say, here's some freedom. We trust you to do it well. And like any classic Hollywood movie, the kids do something crazy. They throw a big raging party. They have a bunch of cakers over. Um, and they abuse their freedom. And they show their parents to be looking like they were fools. Um, the kids use the freedom they had and mock their parents. And I think a lot of times that is kind of a way to look at the Christian life. So God saved you, God gave you freedom, not for you to slander it or to abuse it, but actually to walk and to enjoy God so that God would be praised. So the same way those kids did this, so people would say, man, your parents are really, really good. The same way is to show that God is good, not that God is foolish. So as a Christian, um, the Bible says here that you... Verse 16, to live as people who are free. So if you're a Christian, you have the right to say, biblically, that you are the freest person on the planet if you're a Christian. And by that, what I mean is every unbeliever in the world is actually enslaved to their own sin. Uh, they're enslaved to their own desires. There's not a They don't have the freedom to resist or to fight sin. They just do it. It's out of obligation. Uh, their will is not free. It is enslaved. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that prior to our rescue in Christ, we were the exact same way. Uh, We were dead in our sins to God. We lived in Ephesians 2, so we followed the the way of the world. Kind of under the influence of the devil, um, there was no freedom, just enslavement that led to death. So there was really no freedom, even though we thought it was. So unbelievers don't actually rule. Sin rules them. It's this weird paradox. We think we're free, we're actually enslaved. But now, in Ephesians chapter 2, it then says, But now, in Christ, God has made you alive. You are alive to God and to Christ. Uh, You you begin to see God as He truly is. You love Him. You treasure Him. And He is your King. So now as a Christian, you are free from the evil rule of your heart because you've been given a new heart. Uh, You are free from the ways of the devil because you are in Christ's path. Now you're finally able to choose a life and reject sin because of God's mercy to you. So now all of this is a gift of God, not that it would be abused, but that would be used for God's glory. So God didn't free you so that you can finally, quote, do what you want, which is to sin, but God freed you to enjoy God. That's the point of why he did it, so that he would look good, not that he would look foolish. So in verse 16, Peter says, to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So again, we're not meant to abuse grace. That's not what we're designed for. Uh, servants of God are actually free. They delight to serve God. And ironically, the word for servant here is actually the Greek word which actually means slave, which I think is very paradoxical to, to us. Um, you're slaves to the one that you obey. Uh, so the obedience of your will is enslaved. So uh, Peter's not calling you a slave as an occupation or as a personhood, but of what your will wants to do. So his slavery here refers to your will. So a good a helpful verse is Romans chapter 6, verse 22. And it says that we've been set free from sin and have, been, have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its an eternal life. So when we were slaves to sin, the reward we got was death and hell. It's not exactly a free life. Uh, the Christian is now enslaved to God. Their will is subject to God which gives life and goodness and eternal life in the end. So if you think about it, what a, what a, what a beautiful slavery to have to be enslaved to Christ, to be finally free, to, to see that he is good, to see him as he really is. Um, that is the true freedom of a Christian is being enslaved to God. And it's not a begrudging fear of God or a, I have to do so because God said so. Again, it implies your will. It doesn't imply your... Um, your, your, your work position inclines your will. So you want to obey God. You want to be obedient to Him. It's not begrudging. It's a new desire. So you have a new master. It's Christ. He's a good master. He's a good king. And He rules your your life well. And we're called to be subject to Him. And to abstain from the flesh which fights within us. So in God's mercy He set us free. And as we close, I want us to see these last two verses. If you look, starting from verse 11 to verse 17... I hope you'll see a theme. I'm going to kind of voice it off here. I'll go one verse at a time. I want you to see Peter's main thrust of this text. Look at verse 11. We'll just go verse by verse. Verse 11 says, Beloved, so loved ones by God, we're called soldiers on the earth. Okay. Verse 12, we do this, we do this thing so that God would be glorified. Verse 13, we obey for the Lord's sake. Verse 14, the government has been sent by God. Verse 15, this is the will of God. Verse 16, we live as servants of God. And verse 17, we fear God. So it's not clear enough, we are not the theme here. Uh, this purpose, this reason for this text, this the, our implications, the grounds for why we walk on this earth is for God, for Christ. Uh, the grand design is that God would look good, that He'd be glorified, that He'd be seen, that He'd be marveled at, that He'd be enjoyed... As we wander about the earth until we get to our heavenly home so from our personal desires in our personal life uh, to how we act around those who aren't christians to how we act at work or with our spouse or at home or on the streets is so that jesus would look good so the purpose of it all is that our slavery to god would show true freedom from the slavery of sin i want to close with one uh passage in luke chapter 17 i want to read it for you it's three verses it's a parable that Jesus told that I think makes a lot of sense. Let me read this for you. Luke 17, verses 7 through 10 says this. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So overall in the Christian life, that is what we can say. We have only done what was our duty, which is to make much of Christ, which is to show that God is good and to demonstrate the Christian life in all of life, as we believe the gospel, so our duty to live as sojourners on earth for the Lord's sake, as His servants, so that others might see God's glory. And at the end of life, I think we can all just say, "It was only our duty." <laughs> Let's pray. God, we thank you for Your Word. God, we thank you for calling us to your to your service, um, to be slaves of You, to be free from sin. God, You are a good Master. You are a good King. Help us to understand that as we live about the earth that we would make much of you, You that you would be seen as glorious, that you would be seen as valuable, and that you would be seen as worth giving everything up for to have and to pursue. Help us to fight our flesh. Help us to make war within our souls. Help us to trust that you are better than the fleeting pleasures of sin. God, we love you. We thank you for your Son who has saved us from death and who will free us from now to eternity. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. It means so much to us. In your name we pray, amen.